Hello everyone. Thank you for joining me around the fireside tonight. My name is Joe, and I'm here to tell you a story. A story a little different to anything that I've told before. A story of gods and goddesses, of poison and serpents, of the creation of the universe and the destruction of mankind. A story of the mythology of the ancient Egyptians, taken from their own texts and tombs. Presenting the first part of Legends of the Gods by E. A. Wallace Budge, published in 1912. This is the 100th episode of Tales by the Fireside. I wanted to do something a little different and a little bit special for it. I've always been very interested in the ancient Egyptians and their mythology and their lore and all the kind of weird and crazy mysteries that surround them. Due to my own personal life taking a bit of a downward turn recently, I started to let some of the things that were most important to me slip away. And that explains the, uh, shall we say, delay in uploading this episode. I would like to sincerely thank you for your support and your patience over these last few months, and I hope that I can go back to delivering regular stories from now on. Now, with all that out of the way, please... Get comfortable, let go of the daylight, and join me for our story. Legends of the Gods by E. A. Wallace Budge Introduction The Legend of the God Nebuchadnezzar and the History of Creation The text of the remarkable legend of the creation, which forms the first section of this volume, is preserved in a well-written papyrus in the British Museum, where it bears the number 10188. This papyrus was acquired by the late Mr. A. H. Rind in 1861 or 1862, when he was excavating some tombs on the west bank of the Nile at Thebes. He did not himself find it in a tomb, but he received it from the British consul at Luxor, Mustafa Aga, during an interchange of gifts when Mr. Rind was leaving the country. Mustafa Aga obtained the papyrus from the famous hiding place of the royal mummies at Dur al-Bahari, with the situation of which he was well acquainted for many years before it became known to the Egyptian service of antiquities. The papyrus is about 16 feet 8 inches in length and is 9 and a quarter inches in width. It contains 21 columns of hieratic text which are written in short lines and are poetical in character, and 12 columns or pages of text written in long lines. The total number of lines is between 930 and 940. The text is written in a small, very black but neat hand may be assigned to a time between the 26th dynasty and the Ptolemaic period. The titles, catchwords, rubrics, names of Apep and his fiends, and a few other words are written in red ink. There are two colophons. In the one, we have a date, namely the first day of the fourth month of the twelfth year of Pharaoh Alexander, 
the son of Alexander, i.e. BC 311, and in the other, the name of the priest who had either the papyrus written or appropriated it, namely Nezmenu or Nezamsu. The legend of the creation is found in the third work which is given in the papyrus, and which is called the Book of Overthrowing Apep, Enemy of Ra, the Enemy of Unnefer, i.e. Osiris. This work contained a series of spells which were recited during the performance of certain prescribed ceremonies, with the object of preventing storms and dispersing rain clouds and removing any obstacle, animate or inanimate, which could prevent the rising of the sun in the morning, or obscure his light during the day. The leader-in-chief of the hosts of darkness was a fiend called Apep, who appeared in the sky in the form of a monster serpent, and, marshalling all the fiends of the Tuat, attempted to keep the sun god imprisoned in the kingdom of darkness. Right in the midst of the spells which were directed against Apep, we find inserted the legend of the creation, which occurs in no other known Egyptian document. Curiously enough, a longer version of the legend is given a little farther on, Whether the scribe had two copies to work from and simply inserted both, or whether he copied the short version and added to it as he went along, cannot be said. The legend is entitled The Book of Knowing the Evolutions of Ra and Overthrowing Apep. This curious book describes the origin not only of heaven and earth and all therein, but also of God himself. In it, the name Apep is not even mentioned, and it is impossible to explain its appearance in the Apep ritual unless we assume that the whole book was regarded as a spell of the most potent character, the mere recital of which was fraught with deadly effect for Apep and his friends. The story of the creation is supposed to be told by the gob Nebercher. This name means the Lord to the uttermost limit and the character of the god suggests that the word limit refers to time and space, and that he was, in fact, the everlasting god of the universe. This god's name occurs in Coptic texts, and then he appears as one who possesses all the attributes which are associated by modern nations with God Almighty. Where and how Nebercher existed is not said, but it seems as if he was believed to have been an almighty and invisible power which filled all space. It seems also that a desire arose in him to create the world, and in order to do this he took upon himself the form of the god Capera, who, from first to last, was regarded as the creator par excellence among all the gods known to the Egyptians. When this transformation of Nebercher into Capera took place, the heavens and the earth had not been created. But there seems to have existed a vast mass of water, or world ocean, called Nu, and it must have been in this that the transformation took place. In this celestial ocean were the germs of all the living things which afterwards took form in heaven and on earth. But... They existed in a state of inertness and helplessness. Out of this ocean, Kipera raised himself 
and so passed from a state of passiveness and inertness into one of activity. When Capera raised himself out of the ocean new, he found himself in a vast empty space, wherein was nothing on which he could stand. The second version of the legend says that Capera gave being to himself by uttering his own name, and the first version states that he made use of words in providing himself with a place on which to stand. In other words, when Capera was still a portion of the being of Nibertia, he spake the word Capera, and Capera came into being. Similarly, when he needed a place whereon to stand, he uttered the name of the thing, or place, on which he wanted to stand, and that thing, or place, came into being. This spell he seems to have addressed to his heart, or, as we should say, will, so that Capera willed the standing place to appear, and it did so forthwith. The first version only mentions a heart, but the second also speaks of a heart soul as assisting Capera in his first creative acts. And we may assume that he thought out in his heart what manner of thing he wished to create, and then by uttering its name caused his thought to take concrete form. This process of thinking out the existence of things is expressed in Egyptian by words which mean laying the foundation in the heart. In arranging his thoughts and their visible forms, Capera was assisted by the goddess Mat, who is usually regarded as the goddess of law, order and truth, and in late times was held to be the female counterpart of Thoth, the heart of the god Ra. In this legend, however, she seems to play the part of wisdom, as described in the book of Proverbs, for it was by Mart that he laid the foundation. Having described the coming into being of Capera and the place on which he stood, the legend goes on to tell of the means by which the first Egyptian triad, or trinity, came into existence. Capera had, in some form, union with his own shadow, and so begot offspring, who proceeded from his body under the forms of the gods Shu and Tefnut. According to a tradition preserved in the pyramid texts, this event took place at On, Heliopolis, and the old form of the legend describes the production of Shu and Tefnut to an act of masturbation. Originally, these gods were the personifications of air and dryness and liquids, respectively. Thus, with their creation, the materials for the construction of the atmosphere and sky came into being. Shu and Tefnut were united, and their offspring were Keb, the earth god, and Nut, the sky goddess. We now have five gods in existence. Capera, the creative principle, Shu, the atmosphere, Tefnut, the waters above the heavens, Nut, the sky goddess, and Keb, the earth god. Presumably about this time the sun first rose out of the watery abyss of Nu and shone upon the world and produced day. In early times the sun, or his light, was regarded as a form of Shu. The gods Keb and Nut were united in an embrace, and the effect of the coming of light was to separate them. As long as the sun shone, i.e. as long as it was day, Nut the sky goddess remained in her place above the earth, 
being supported by Shu. But as soon as the sun set, she left the sky and gradually descended until she rested on the body of the earth god, Keb. The embraces of Keb cause Nut to bring forth five gods at a birth, namely Osiris, Horus, Set, Isis and Nephthys. Osiris and Isis married before their birth, and Isis brought forth a son called Horus. Set and Nephthys also married before their birth, and Nephthys brought forth a son named Anpu, or Anubis, though he's not mentioned in the legend. Of these gods, Osiris is singled out for special mention in the legend, in which Capera, speaking as Nebercha, says that his name is Ausares who is the essence of the primeval matter of which he himself is formed. Thus, Osiris was of the same substance as the great god who created the world, according to the Egyptians, and was a reincarnation of his great-grandfather. This portion of the legend helps to explain the views held about Osiris as the great ancestral spirit, who when on earth was a benefactor of mankind, and who when in heaven, was the saviour of souls. The legend speaks of the sun as the eye of Capera, or Nibercha, and refers to some calamity which befell it and extinguished its light. This calamity may have been simply the coming of night, or eclipses, or storms, but in any case, the god made a second eye, i.e. the moon, to which he gave some of the splendour of the other. And he gave it its place in his face, and henceforth it ruled throughout the night, and had special powers in respect to the production of trees, plants, vegetables, herbs, etc. Thus, from the earliest times, the moon was associated with the fertility of the earth, especially in connection with the production of abundant crops and successful harvests. According to the legend, men and women sprang not from the earth, but directly from the body of the god Capera, or Nebercha, who placed his members together and then wept tears upon them. And men and women came into being from the tears which had fallen from his eyes. No special mention is made of the creation of beasts in the legend, but the god says that he created creeping things of all kinds, and among these are probably included the larger quadrupeds. The men and women, and all the other living creatures which were made at that time, reproduced their species, each in his own way, and so the earth became filled with their descendants which we see at the present time. And such is the legend of creation as it is found in the papyrus of Nez Menu. The text of both versions is full of difficult passages and some readings are corrupt, Unfortunately, variant versions by which they might be corrected are lacking. The general meaning of the legend in both versions is quite clear, and it throws considerable light on the Egyptian religion. The Egyptians believed in the existence of God, the creator and maintainer of all things, but they also thought that the concerns of this world were committed by him to the superintendence of a series of subordinate beings or spirits called gods over whom they believed magical spells and ceremonies to have the greatest influence. The deity was a being so remote 
and of such an exalted nature that it was idle to expect him to interfere in the affairs of mortals, or to change any decree or command which he had once uttered. The spirits, or gods, on the other hand, possessing natures not far removed from those of men, were thought to be amenable to supplications and flattery, and to wheedling and cajolery, especially when accompanied by gifts. It is of great interest to find a legend in which the power of God as the creator of the world and the sun and the moon is so clearly set forth, embedded in a book of magical spells devoted to the destruction of the mythological monster who existed solely to prevent the sun from rising and shining. The Legend of the Destruction of Mankind the text containing the legend of the destruction of mankind is written in hieroglyphs and is found on the four walls of a small chamber which is entered from the Hall of Columns in the tomb of Seti I, which is situated on the west bank of the Nile at Thebes. On the wall facing the door of this chamber is painted in red the figure of the large cow of heaven. In the lower part of her belly is decorated with a series of thirteen stars, and immediately beneath it are the two boats of Ra, called Semketet and Manchtet, or Sektet and Matet. Each of her four legs is held in position by two gods, and the god Shu, with outstretched uplifted arms, supports her body. The legend takes us back to the time when the gods of Egypt went about in the country and mingled with men, and were thoroughly acquainted with their desires and needs. The king who reigned over Egypt was Ra, the sun god, who was not, however, the first of the dynasty of gods who ruled the land. His predecessor on the throne was Hephaestus, who, according to Manetho, reigned 9,000 years, whilst Ra only reigned 992 years. Panodorus makes his reign to have lasted less than 100 years. Be this as it may, it seems that the self-created and self-begotten god Ra had been ruling over mankind for a very long time, for his subjects were murmuring against him and they were complaining that he was old, that his bones were like silver, his body like gold, and his hair like lapis lazuli. When Ra heard these murmurings, he ordered his bodyguard to summon all the gods who had been with him in the primeval world ocean, and to bid them privately to assemble in the great house, which can be no other than the famous temple of Heliopolis. This statement is interesting, for it proves that the legend is of Heliopolitan origin, like the cult of Ra itself, and that it does not belong, at least insofar as it applies to Ra, to the pre-dynastic period. When Ra entered the great temple, the gods made obeisance to him, and took up their positions on each side of him, and informed him that they awaited his words. Addressing Nu, the personification of the world ocean, Ra bade them to take notice of the fact that the men and women whom his eye had created were murmuring against him. He then asked them to consider the matter and to devise a plan of action for him, for he was unwilling to slay the rebels without hearing what his gods had to say. In reply, the gods advised Ra to send forth his eye to destroy the blasphemers, for there was no eye on earth that could resist it. 
especially when it took the form of the goddess Hathor. Ra accepted their advice and sent forth his eye in the form of Hathor to destroy them. And, though the rebels had fled to the mountains in fear, the eye pursued them and overtook them and destroyed them. Hathor rejoiced in her work of destruction, and on her return was praised by Ra for what she had done. The slaughter of men began at Sutan Henen, or Heracleopolis, and during the night Hathor waded about in the blood of men. Ra asserted his intention of being master of the rebels, and this is probably referred to in the Book of the Dead, chapter 17, in which it is said that Ra rose as king for the first time in Sutenhenen. Osiris also was crowned at Sutenhenen, and in this city lived the great Bennu bird, or phoenix, and the crusher of bones, mentioned in the negative confession. The legend now goes on to describe an act of Ra, the significance of which is difficult to explain. The god ordered messengers to be brought to him, and when they arrived, he commanded them to run like the wind to Abu, or the city of Elephantine, and to bring him large quantities of the fruit called Tatat. What kind of fruit this was is not clear, but Bruges, a translator, thought they were mandrakes, the so-called love apples, and this translation of Tatat may be used provisionally. The mandrakes were given to Secti, a goddess of Heliopolis, to crush up and grind up, and when this was done, they were mixed with human blood and put in a large brewing of beer, which the women slaves had made from wheat. All in all, they made 7,000 vessels of beer. When Ra saw the beer, he approved of it, and ordered it to be carried up the river to where the goddess Hathor was still, it seems, engaged in slaughtering men. During the night, he caused this beer to be poured out onto the meadows of the four heavens, and when Hathor came, she saw the beer with human blood and mandrakes in it, and drank of it, and became drunk, and paid no further attention to men and women. In welcoming the goddess, Ra called her Amit, i.e. the beautiful one, and from this time onward, beautiful women, beautiful women, were found in the city of Amit, which was situated in the western delta near Lake Mariotis. Ra also ordered that in future, at every one of his festivals, Vessels of sleep-producing beer should be made, and that their number should be the same as the number of the handmaidens of Ra. Those who took part in these festivals of Hathor and Ra drank beer in very large quantities, and under the influence of the beautiful women, i.e. the priestesses, who were supposed to resemble Hathor in their physical attractions, the festal celebrations degenerated into drunken and licentious orgies. Soon after this, Ra complained that he was smitten with pain and that he was weary of the children of men. He thought them a worthless remnant and wished that more of them had been slain. The gods about him begged him to endure and reminded him that his power was in proportion to his will. Ra was, however, unconsoled and he complained that his limbs were weak for the first time in his life. Thereupon the god Nu told Shep to help Ra, and he ordered Nut to take the great god Ra on her back. Nut changed herself into a cow, and with the help of Shu, Ra got on her back. As soon as men saw that Ra was on the back of the cow of heaven, 
and was about to leave them, they became filled with fear and repentance, and cried out to Ra to remain with them and to slay all those who had blasphemed against him. But the cow moved on her way and carried Ra to Het-Artet, a town of the gnome of Mariotis, where in later days the right leg of Osiris was said to be preserved. Meanwhile, darkness covered the land. When day broke, the men who had repented of their blasphemies appeared with their bows and slew the enemies of Ra. At this result, Ra was pleased, and he forgave those who had repented because of their righteous slaughter of his enemies. From this time onwards, human sacrifices were offered up at the festivals of Ra celebrated in this place, and at Heliopolis and in other parts of Egypt. After these things, Ra declared to Nut that he had intended to leave this world and to ascend into heaven, and that all those who would see his face must follow him thither. Then he went up into heaven and prepared a place to which all might come. Then he said, Hetep Seket Aa, i.e. let a great field be produced, and straightway Seket Hetep, or the field of peace, came into being. He next said, let there be reeds, or aru, in it. And straight away, Seket Aru, or the field of reeds, came into being. Seket Hetep was the Elysian fields of the Egyptians, and the field of reeds was a well-known section of it. Another command of the god Ra resulted in the creation of the stars, which the legend compares to flowers. Then the goddess Nut trembled in all her body, and Ra, fearing that she might fall, caused to come into being the four pillars on which the heavens are supported. Turning to Shu, Ra entreated him to protect these supports, and to place himself under Nut, and to hold her up in position with his hands. Thus Shu became the new sun god in place of Ra and the heavens in which Ra lived were supported and placed beyond the risk of falling, and mankind would live and rejoice in the light of the new sun. At this place in the legend, a text is inserted called the Chapter of the Cow. It describes how the cow of heaven and the two boats of the sun shall be painted, and gives the positions of the gods who stand by the legs of the cow, and a number of short magical names or formulae which are inexplicable. The general meaning of the picture of the cow is quite clear. The cow represents the sky in which the boats of Ra sail, and her four legs are the four cardinal points which cannot be changed. The region above her back is the heaven in which Ra reigns over the beings who pass thereto from this earth when they die. And here was situated the home of the gods and the celestial spirits who govern this world. When Ra had made a heaven for himself, and had arranged for a continuance of life on the earth and the welfare of human beings, he remembered that at one time when reigning on earth he had been bitten by a serpent and nearly lost his life through the bite. Fearing that the same calamity might befall his successor, he determined to take steps to destroy the power of all noxious reptiles that dwelt on the earth. With this object in view, he told Thoth to summon Keb, the earth god, to his presence, and this god having arrived, Ra told him 
that war must be made against the serpents that dwelt in his dominions. He further commanded him to go to the god Nu and to tell him to set a watch over all the reptiles that were in the earth and in the water, and to draw up a writing for every place in which serpents are known to be, containing strict orders that they are to bite no one. Though these serpents knew that Ra was retiring from the earth, they were never to forget that his rays would fall upon them. In his place, their father, Keb, was to keep watch over them, and he was their father forever. As a further protection against them, Ra promised to impart to magicians and snake charmers the particular word of power, Hekau, with which he guarded himself against the attacks of serpents and also to transmit it to his son Osiris. Thus, those who are ready to listen to the formulae of the snake charmers shall always be immune from the bites of serpents, and their children also. From this, we may gather that the profession of the snake charmer is very ancient, and that this class of magicians were supposed to owe the foundation of their craft to a decree of Ra himself. Ra sent next for the god Thoth, and when he came into the presence of Ra, he invited him to go with him to a distance, to a place called Tuat, i.e. Hell, or the Other World, in which region he had determined to make his light to shine. When they arrived there, he told Thoth, the scribe of truth, to write down on his tablets the names of all who were therein, and to punish those among them who had sinned against him and he deputed Thoth the power to deal absolutely as he pleased with all the beings in the Tuat. Ra loathed the wicked, and wished them to be kept at a distance from him. Thoth was to be his vicar, to fill his place, and the place of Ra was to be his name. He gave him power to send out a messenger, Hab, so the Ibis, Habi, came into being. All that Thoth would do would be good, Ken. Therefore, the Techni bird of Thoth came into being. He gave Thoth power to embrace An, the heavens. Therefore, the moon god, Ah, came into being. He gave Thoth power to turn back the northern peoples. Therefore, the dog-headed ape of Thoth came into being. Finally, Ra told Thoth, he would take his place in the sight of all those who were wont to worship Ra, and all that should praise him as God. Thus, the abdication of Ra was complete. In the fragmentary texts which follow, we are now told how a man may benefit by the recital of this legend. He must proclaim that the soul which animated Ra was the soul of the aged one, and that of Shu, and then he must proclaim that he is Ra himself, and his word of power, Heka. If he recites this chapter correctly, he shall have life in the other world, and he will be held in far greater fear than here. A rubric adds that he must be dressed in new linen garments and be well washed with Nile water. He must wear white sandals, and his body must be anointed with holy oil. He must burn incense in a censer, and a figure of Mat, truth, must be painted on his tongue with green paint. These regulations applied to the laity as well as to the clergy.
The Legend of Ra and Isis. The original text of this very interesting legend is written in the Hieratic character on a papyrus preserved at Turin, and was published by Plate and Rossi in their Corpus of Turin Papyri. It has already been seen that the god Ra, when retiring from the government of this world, took steps through Thoth to supply mankind with words of power and spells with which to protect themselves against the bites of serpents and other noxious reptiles. The legend of the destruction of mankind affords no explanation of this remarkable fact. But when we read the following legend of Ra and Isis, we understand why Ra, though king of the gods, was afraid of the reptiles which lived in the kingdom of Keb. The legend, chapter of the divine god, begins by enumerating the mighty attributes of Ra as the creator of the universe, and describes the god of many names as unknowable even by the gods. At this time, Isis lived in the form of a woman who possessed the knowledge of spells and incantations. That is to say, she was regarded much in the same way as modern African peoples regard their medicine women or witch women. She had used her spells on men and was tired of exercising her powers on them, and she craved the opportunity of making herself mistress of the gods and spirits as well as of men. She meditated how she could make herself mistress both of heaven and earth, and finally she decided that she could only obtain the power she wanted if she possessed the knowledge of the secret name of Ra in which his very existence was bound up. Ra guarded this name most jealously, for he knew that if he revealed it to any being, he would henceforth be at that being's mercy. Isis saw that it was impossible to make Ra declare his name to her by ordinary methods, and she therefore thought out the following plan. It was well known in Egypt and the Sudan at a very early period that if a magician obtain some portion of a person's body, example, a hair, a paring of a nail, a fragment of skin, or a portion of some efflux from the body, spells could be used upon them which would have the effect of causing grievous harm to that person. Isis noted that Ra had become old and feeble, and that as he went about he dribbled at the mouth, and that his saliva fell upon the ground. Watching her opportunity, she caught some of the saliva, and mixing it with dust, she moulded it into the form of a large serpent with poison fangs, and, having uttered her spells over it, she left the serpent lying on the path by which Ra travelled day by day as he went about inspecting Egypt, so that it might strike him as he passed along. We may note in passing that the Banyoro in the Sudan employ serpents in killing buffaloes at the present day. Soon after Isis had placed the serpent on the path, Ra passed by, and the reptile bit him, thus injecting the poison into his body. Its effect was terrible, and Ra cried out in agony. His jaws chattered, his lips trembled, and he became speechless for a time. Never before had he suffered such pain. The gods, hearing his cry, rushed to him, and when he could speak, 
he told them that he had been bitten by a deadly serpent. In spite of all the words of power which were known to him, and his secret name which had been hidden in his body at his birth, a serpent had bitten him, and he was being consumed with a fiery pain. He then commanded that all the gods who had any knowledge of magical spells should come to him, and when they came, Isis, the great lady of spells, the destroyer of diseases, and the revivifier of the dead, came with them. Turning to Ra, she said, What hath happened, O divine father? And in answer, the god told her that a serpent had bitten him, and that he was hotter than fire, and colder than water, and his limbs quaked, and that he was losing the power of sight. Then Isis said to him with guile, Divine Father, tell me thy name, for he who uttereth his own name shall live. Thereupon Ra proceeded to enumerate the various things that he had done, and to describe his creative acts, and ended his speech to Isis by saying that he was Kepera in the morning, Ra at noon, and Timu in the evening. Apparently he thought that the naming of these three great names would satisfy Isis, and that she would immediately pronounce a word of power and stop the pain in his body, which, during his speech, had become more acute. Isis, however, was not deceived, and she knew well that Ra had not declared to her his hidden name. This she told him, and she begged him once again to tell her his name. For a time, the god refused to utter the name, but as the pain in his body became more violent, and the poison passed through his veins like fire, he said, Isis shall search in me, and my name shall pass from my body into hers. At that moment, Ra removed himself from the sight of the gods in his boat, and the throne in the boat of millions of years had no occupant. The great name of Ra was, it seems, hidden in his heart and Isis, having some doubt as to whether Ra would keep his word or not, agreed with Horus that Ra must be made to take an oath to part with his two eyes, that is, the sun and the moon. At length, Ra allowed his heart to be taken from his body, and his great and secret name whereby he lived passed into the possession of Isis. Thus, Ra became, to all intents and purposes, a dead god. Then Isis, strong in the power of her spells, said, Flow, poison, come out of Ra. Eye of Horus, come out of Ra, and shine outside his mouth. It is I, Isis, who work, and I have made the poison to fall on the ground. Verily, the name of the great god is taken from him. Ra shall live, and the poison shall die. If the poison live, Ra shall die. This was the infallible spell which was used in cases of poisoning, for it rendered the bite or sting of every venomous reptile harmless. It drove the poison out of Ra, and since it was composed by Isis after she obtained the knowledge of his secret name, it was irresistible. If the words were written on papyrus or linen over a figure of Timu or Herok Hekenu, or Isis or Horus, they became a mighty charm. If the papyrus or linen were steeped in water and the water drunk, the words were equally efficacious as a charm against snake bites. To this day, 
water in which the written words of a text from the Quran have been dissolved, or water drunk from a bowl on the inside of which religious texts have been written, is still regarded as a never-failing charm in Egypt and the Sudan. Thus, we see that the modern custom of drinking magical water was derived from the ancient Egyptians, who believed that it conveyed into their bodies the actual power of the gods. The end of part one. Good night.